Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Welcome to this episode, everyone. Today we're going to be speaking with Chris Simcock, who's an impact investor here in New Zealand. Here's an excerpt from the interview with Chris. Stepping yourself out of uh, what is probably viewed as a, a pretty successful job in a traditional societal uh, perspective into something which you, you really are putting yourself out, out to fail and, and fail in a big, in a big way. Mm. My dad always told me, make your mistakes boldly. And uh, I think <laughs> this is about as bold as, as I could go. What we're doing now is trying to broaden that mandate. So yeah. instead of just thinking about shareholder value creation, starting to think about stakeholder value creation. And that's something which I find really fascinating. Yeah. Now, in next week's episode, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Peter Simpson, who in the last few decades has written biographies of some of New Zealand's poets, authors, painters, and musicians. And we have a great conversation about his life and the arts in New Zealand, particularly focusing on the arts in Christchurch between 1933 and 1953. I think you're really going to enjoy it. But for now, let's dive into the interview with Chris Simcock. And don't forget... This is the 35th episode, so you might want to check out some of the earlier episodes as well, because I talk with a lot of different social enterprises and people doing things just a little bit differently. Now, here's the interview with Chris. Well, it's a pleasure to welcome Chris Simcock, who's uh, the founder of Impact Ventures. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. And on this podcast, we talk a lot about purpose and why people do what they do. But in order to do that, it's great to go back to the beginning of their lives and kind of trace the history to work out how they got to what they're doing now. So if it's okay, we'll just go right back to the beginning. And if you can tell us a little bit about where you're from. Sure. So I I grew up in Christchurch, New Zealand. Um, I had a a great upbringing. My my parents were both very driven but uh, very supportive people and uh, got pushed pretty hard, I'd say, through my uh, schooling years. Went Mm -hmm. to St Andrews College here in Christchurch Mm -hmm. and then Canterbury University uh, where I studied finance and economics. Mm -hmm. And finances. And that that childhood was that spent exclusively here in Christchurch, or did you move around at all? Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. Yeah, solely, solely Christchurch. Yeah. And how would you have described yourself as a child? What sort of things did you enjoy? In other words, did you enjoy the outdoors, or were you more computer games inside, or? I was definitely an outdoorsy person. I I, uh, loved sport. Played uh, a lot of basketball, a lot of cricket. Played a bit of golf and uh, a bit of bit of everything really, especially mm-hmm. through those those schooling years. Mm-hmm. And as a family, uh, we, we spent a lot of time out on our boat doing water skiing and, and wakeboarding and enjoying time on the beach, which is mm-hmm. great. And also was quite entrepreneurial, uh, I would say, as a, as a young kid. Mm. I started uh, started my first business importing clothes from uh, Thailand and Bangladesh when I was 13 hmm. and selling them on Trade Me. And we also started getting into the, the rubber wristband which was a bit of a fad at the time, and uh, made a bit of money, lost a, lost a fair bit of money as well. You, you quickly learn uh, who's trustworthy and who, who isn't when you're, you're dealing overseas. Yep. And that was, I guess, my first exposure into, into the business world. And, and what, what was it that caused you to do that, do you think, at such a young age? Like, was there examples in your family, or where did that come from? 
My, my dad's always been a businessman. Uh, well, firstly, my granddad actually was the, the commissioner of the IRD. Okay. Uh, so there's there's been a bit of a I guess a, a business background through the through the Simcock line. My uh, my father's been a, a really successful um, businessman himself, running mm-hmm. a, a large engineering business here in Christchurch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess that that rubbed off on me. And I I was looking at ways that uh, I, I could start. Um, I started doing my first dummy share portfolio when I was uh, just starting out at high school as well, and just just developed an interest in companies and, and how they worked and. Um, how I guess the, the the world interacted with with individuals as well, mm. not only from a consumer perspective, but also investors, and how these companies were funded. So that uh, yeah, I guess that was embedded at me at, so, at a young age. So it was part of your world from a very young young age growing up that this was something that you wanted to get involved in. It sounds like it was. Yeah, economics and accounting were always my favourite subjects at school. Right. Uh, and as I said, had an interest in, in, in the share market. Mm. Where the share market side of things come, came from, I don't really know. Mm. Uh, I know I did my work experience in, in year 10 at school at mm. um, Forsyth Bar, a local share broking firm here. And um, but that probably sparked a bit of interest. But uh, I, I always knew that the, the finance world was, was something I wanted to go into. Mm. And I, I guess I kind of set my sights on that, that pretty early on and yeah. obviously started studying that once I, I moved to university. Right. Well, if you know what you want to do, then you might as well do it, right? <laughs> Made it easy. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people my age, I mean, even through the university days, even post-uni, uh, people are, are really unsure of, of the direction they want to go in. And mm. I, was, I was really lucky in that I had a pretty clear view uh, from a young age. And uh, as quite a futuristic person, it made it quite easy for me to, to set my sights and kind of think pretty strategically about how I wanted to, to get to where I where I'd set my sights on. Yeah. So what what sort of courses did you do during your degree? Was it a BCom or something like that? Yes, yeah, so I did. In my undergrad, I just did uh, finance and economics, mm. so a lot of corporate finance, uh, securities, derivatives, your, your general finance papers, and economics was more macro-focused, mm. uh, really interested in international trade and um, the, the big drivers of economies rather than the, the micro side of things. Mm. And then postgrad specialised uh, in finance and actually did a, a research paper on um, international banking crises mm. and uh, whether uh, the, the indicators of a country's economic development had any um, any, any way of uh, leading indicator into their susceptibility to a systemic banking crisis. Mm. So that was that was fascinating. Uh, but yeah, again, really enjoyed the, the corporate finance and, and security side of things at, at yeah. uni as well. Yeah. And that study that you were doing, was that post Lehman Brothers and kind of that whole collapse that had happened? Like it was kind of fresh and real, wasn't it? It was. It was, yeah. it was very topical at the time. And we were also starting to see some, some real sovereign um, type difficulties as well. Okay. Uh, it was probably the early days of, of, of the pigs, your, your Portugal's, Ireland's, Greece and Spain. Mm. And so there, whilst obviously we're, we're looking back at some some longer dated, uh, such as um, such as Zimbabwe was a, a really interesting one to look at, but uh, having some topical examples mm. right, in, right in the news at the time was, was fascinating. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it, how things come and go in terms of headlines, you know, like Greece, for example. Yeah. It felt like for quite a long time, it was headlines like around the world, wasn't it? It yep, was. Very much so. It was. What's the latest? What's happening? Are they going to get a bailout or what's? You know, it was. It's really amazing how it dominated. Yeah, and uh, I think we're now heading into a period where these sort of uh, experiences could could very well come around again. Uh, mm. you, you look at the latest IMF note, talking about uh, the slowdown in global growth and and what they think is 
uh, increasing susceptibility to to a downturn uh, and all the dry powder of the big central banks and mm. their ability to, to do QE or, or something to guide their economies through another downturn is, is probably a lot more limited than it was uh, 10 years ago when we obviously faced our last one. So interesting, uh, interesting times ahead. Interesting days, yeah. And at that point, did you know the career path that you wanted to take or what your dream job would be, that type of thing? Or? Yeah, pretty pretty early on um, uh, in my uni days, I set my sights on, on moving into the investment banking world, uh, mm-hmm. more, bro- more broadly corporate finance. I, I did an internship at, uh, at Deloitte and their corporate finance team here mm-hmm. at the end of my third year, mm-hmm. uh, which was a really good insight. And uh, then heading into my honours year was when you go through the recruitment days of, of all the big investment banks. And so that was, uh, whilst I had set my eyes on it, you, you don't really know what you're getting yourself into until you head up for those interviews. And uh, interviewed at the, the major banks here and ended up uh, heading to First Centre Capital mm-hmm. uh, at my first job out of university, which was a, a great place to start the career. Mm. And that was based in Auckland? That was in Auckland, yes. Yeah, so yeah. it involved a, a shift shift uh, away from uh, Christchurch, which I'm quite a patriotic guy and, and thoroughly enjoy my time down here. So yeah. it was not an easy decision to make, mm. but uh, it was certainly the right, uh, right decision from a career perspective. Mm. Oh, and a personal growth one as well, actually. Yeah, uh, Stepping outside the, the comfort zone and uh, throwing yourself in the deep end. It certainly had some difficulties, in, as particularly in the first 12 months, but yeah. once you, you step through that, uh, I found it really uh, really valuable and yeah. a great time of growth. Yeah. Oh, that's good. So just talk us through, let's tease that out a little bit more. What are some of the things that you learned from that sort of, because you were born here, grew up here, went to university here. After that first year, what were some of the things that, looking back, you would have said, I've actually matured or changed as a person? Um, firstly, uh, I guess it's just your, your first job, you're always going to get a bit of a shock when you, you step into the real mm. world. Um, you, you think you know a lot when you come out of university, but then you hit the ground and uh, you realise that uh, what you thought you knew is a, a lot smaller uh, and probably a lot less significant than, than the reality. Yeah. Um, and so in, in investment banking world, you, you learn how to work pretty hard, pretty uh, pretty quickly. Mm. Um, and so that, that was a bit of a shock for me, especially going from university, we've got 26 weeks a year on holiday. Mm. You go into a banking world where you're working 70, 80 hours every week. Mm. Uh, you got to learn how to look after yourself, mm. how to, to work efficiently. Um, and, and for me, I guess it uh, really helped me to, to figure out what I prioritise in life. Um, when you don't have a lot of free time, you really want to be uh, using that time to, to the best of your ability to, to keep yourself sane, I guess. Um, yeah. But having said that, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the work and so throwing yourself deep into the deep end and uh, learning how to challenge yourself and, and persevere through those challenges was, was really valuable. Yeah, it's so important, isn't it? And just thinking about the work, um, many people who are listening would never have worked in an investment bank type environment. Like, Just talk us through what sort of things were you involved in? What What do you do? in that role what was it that kept you busy for 70 or 80 hours a week sometimes we 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 did a lot of capital raising my first year at uh, first nz was the the biggest year of ipo activity in new zealand market in a long time right Um, the government was was kicking off its state-owned enterprise um sale process so uh, you had some really big ipos with meridian mighty river power um genesis was a bit later on but uh those those processes were going on. Mm. Also, uh, Z Energy IPO'd that year it was eight hundred forty million dollars. So, mm. uh, as a as an analyst in an investment bank, you spend a lot of time preparing marketing materials, doing valuation work on, on what these businesses are work yep. uh, with. So, uh, pitching, doing a lot of origination for for the directors to go present ideas to to clients. 
um, whether that be raising capital for their business or, or doing M&A, say so, mm. uh, buying or selling yeah. businesses. Uh, and then a lot of strategic advisory work as well, mm. um, stuff around capital structures, uh, valuation, as, as I talked about, and then areas of growth that we think uh, businesses should be stepping into. Mm. And with that IPO process, um, I think the word that I'm familiar with would be prospectus, yes. that sort of initial offering document. Is that something that you got involved in as well from time to time? Or? Definitely. Yeah, we, as, uh, as the deal team on, a, on an IPO, you work really closely with the lawyers mm-hmm. um, and, and the legal firms up there would spend a lot of time drafting the, obviously the legal sections yeah. um, and the, the investment bank is a, a more involved in drafting of the company and industry sections and yeah. to do that and, and sell it to uh, institutional investors who are used to looking at hundreds of these deals a year, mm-hmm. you, you need to know the business pretty well mm-hmm. and, and figure out what the, the key drivers of value are for that business, how it's going to grow. Um, and and what investors like to see, so yeah. really getting in there and understanding um, at a at a really granular level how how these big businesses really do tick, um, mm. what are the drivers of their performance, and then being able to communicate that in a way which which is attractive to, to prospective investors was was really good. Um, and in looking at businesses across a really diverse range of sectors as well, mm. uh, was a, a fantastic way of of learning how to analyze businesses mm. and, and uh, yeah. I guess I and I guess you get to team. you get to go pretty deep into the stories of because you want to tell the investor why they should buy right so you need to understand the whole background what's the history what's the story and then why is it a good business t- today right exactly yeah. and and getting really good exposure to the CEOs and the CFOs the guys who communicate that story better than anyone yeah. was was fantastic and that's uh, one of the best parts of, of working in banking you mm. do get thrown into those sort of meetings right from day one yeah so you get the chance to, to learn from the CEOs of the biggest companies in New mm. Zealand and hear hear them communicate that that story to investors it's yeah. uh, it's great yeah what were some of the things that you noticed maybe that were common among amongst the CEOs or the CFOs, like the people who'd made it to the top of their respective organizations, were there things that you thought you'd expect to see or or was every person an individual and quite different? Or They, they are different. There's, there's certainly CEOs that stand out. Um, the <clears throat> CEOs that I was consistently impressed with were the, what I'd describe as the, the visionary CEOs. They could see their company today. They could see where it needed to be in, in five years' time to meet their customer demands. And uh, they would be able to plot the best route to, to get there. Um, mm. Businesses, as, as particularly as a CEO, is, is all about growth. Um, mm. How can you take your company from, from where it is today to, to somewhere that's going to meet your shareholders' objectives over, over a short to medium term period? Mm. Um, and then being able to pull the right levers to, to do that. Uh, and so that strategic thinking and uh, you know, I just, what I described as visionary was mm. um, was something that really stood out. And then from the CEO, uh, CFO, sorry, perspective, the the right hand man to the CEO, the the guy who can actually just think about the practicalities of, of executing on the, uh, those growth strategies, mm-hmm. thinking about the balance sheet, how you're going to fund these uh, yeah. opportunities. And that dynamic of the CEO wanting to forge ahead and the CFO kind of pulling on the yeah. reins. I think it's quite a healthy tension for uh, for a company and um, some, something that we saw work really well, of course, yeah. a, a range. Yeah. yeah, so you've got somebody who's flying the kite and the kite's way off in the distance and then somebody saying, wait a minute, how are we going to, where's the wind blowing? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and being able to see into the future as well. I mean, mm. you, you look at the, the visionary leaders around the world now, um, your Jeff Bezos, your mm. Elon Musks, your, your Bill Gates, the guys who are, 
particularly in the technology sense. Uh, I mean, Bezos was seeing uh, where these things were so far before the rest of the world. And mm. yeah, yeah, I mean, you, you only need to look at the success of Amazon over the last 15 years just to, to see the value of a visionary leader. Uh, and what you don't see there is I'm, I'm sure all the people who are around him are, who are the actual doers, the, the guys who mm. can take his, his big picture thinking and, and put it into practice. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I think this is going to tie in nicely with what we're going to be talking about shortly, but just talk us through, you know, you talked about shareholder value, returning value to shareholders. There's kind of in the way we've thought about investing and about business itself, actually, you know, this is quite fundamental. Traditionally, we've thought about profits and we've thought about what the shareholders can get from this investment. Was that something that you saw, I guess, permeating that process or what was your reflections on that, having been involved in those those deals? Very much so. Um, boards uh, exist fundamentally to look after the interests of shareholders. Boards appoint the CEO and CFO, and their job is to, to deliver the uh, investors' return on capital that they require. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, uh, that is fundamental to, to companies existing. If they don't, uh, investors sell the shares price gets driven down and um, then that return um, sort of evens out um, yeah. and so firstly seeing what uh, what drives the, the investors return on capital requirements so um, I mean you go back to financial theory and think about cost of equity whatever that might be mm-hmm. uh, and then seeing how that is put in practice and in, in a business sense thinking about how they invest their capital uh, for a return and, and what those return hurdles are and if you think about uh, an investor um, mm. and having value created for them, you, you need CEOs that can consistently deliver uh, returns above what that marginal cost of capital is. Mm. And so businesses um, exist with that sole mandate. And yeah, as you talked about, what we're doing now is trying to broaden that mandate. So yeah. instead of just thinking about shareholder value creation, starting to think about stakeholder value creation, and that's something which I find really fascinating. Yeah. Well, I want to dive deeper into that in a minute, but I think it's good to lay the base of your background and where you're from because it helps to inform maybe the decisions that you've made to get to you to get you to where you are sure um just in terms of the ipo and the process uh, i'm just curious if the word verification has any meaning for you in that context is that something that you came across much or we, we did obviously uh, all your offering documentation needs to to be verified um and that's uh, an interesting tension where you've got uh Often you've got shareholders who are, who are selling into an IPO. You, you might have an existing owner or you've got a founder or you've got a private equity fund or whoever it might be. And obviously their incentive through an IPO process is to extract the highest price possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then as the, the other tension, of you've got the, the aftermarket performance aspect. So how well is this company going to trade once it's listed? Mm-hmm. And to do that, you need to be able to price a, an IPO fairly. So uh, the verification of, of all the forecasts you, you put into mm-hmm. an offering document, uh, verification of, of the company strategy is what they're talking about, actually deliverable. Yep. Uh, verification of uh, many aspects of, of the industry, uh, you actually pro- providing a realistic picture of, of the competitive landscape, how the industry is growing, yep. all these things which are, are really fundamental to an investor, mm. making an informed decision about whether they want to actually purchase these shares. Mm. Uh, verification of, of all that is really yeah. important. It's critical, isn't it? The reason I ask is, as you know, I'm a lawyer myself, so I've been yes. involved in some IPOs and preparing documents, and verification was one of those tasks that take a lot longer than people think it will because the the marketing side would would want to tell the story about the company right but 
you have to get those details right. And sometimes there's a tendency to stretch what's said, you know, like we're the largest whatever in whatever region. Yeah. How do you know that you're the largest? You know, like what's yeah. the what's the proof if somebody calls us on page 75, paragraph three, sentence four, and they say, you said that you're the largest in this region. How do you prove it? So it's that sort of process, isn't it? Very much so. And luckily, as, as the bankers, we're often the ones who are probably in, inflating the truth for, <laughs> for the interests of our of our uh, our clients and it was the lawyers who were constantly pulling us back into line so yeah yeah interesting dynamic it's an interesting tension yeah because you want you ultimately you want the company to be successful yeah but you also need to be telling the right story and yeah and and what's interesting within an investment bank is you actually have competing interests on on different sides within the same within the same company so your investment bank is uh, often working for the vendor say we're, we're the uh, the company that's well sorry the shareholders of, of the vehicle yep. um, that is, is selling uh, into the IPO so obviously we're trying to extract the highest price for our mm. clients but then on the other side of the Chinese wall you've got the institutional sales and the, the wealth managers the, the guys who are buying these deals and tacked in the interests of their clients they want to obviously pull the price down as, as right. low as possible so you often uh, start with valuation being uh, a wee way apart and just like any good negotiation uh, that evens out over time and you land uh, and most IPOs end up getting priced really fairly. Um, that's something we really prided ourselves on at, at First NZ Capital was ensuring yeah. that our clients had a, a good aftermarket experience and yeah. uh, the company when they started trading uh, delivered on, on what they talked about doing because once a company falls out of favour with the investor landscape it's really hard to gain that trust again. Mm. Yeah, if you go in at two dollars a share and then two weeks later it's one dollar a share, yeah. it's not good for anybody, is it? <laughs> and there, there's been some terrible examples of that yeah. uh, in the New Zealand market, well, globally, but mm. um, some in the New Zealand market in the last five or so years as well. So yeah. no one's immune from it. Yeah. yeah. So how many years did you spend doing that? Just just over four years. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And during that time, is that sort of what you thought you'd be doing for a long time? Because obviously you're not doing exactly the same thing now. You're, you're kind of pivoted and gotten involved in different things. But um, I'm just curious. I guess I'm curious about how you came to be doing what you're doing now. So maybe talk us through your thinking on that. I think it probably was what I thought I would do for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, investment banking was my dream job. I thought I'd probably have a longer path to getting to it mm-hmm. than I ended up doing, mm-hmm. uh, getting in there straight after uni. Um, after after my first couple of years there, as I said, the first year was, was really hard. Second year, I started to feel like I was getting my feet under the desk mm-hmm. and was really enjoying it. Uh, at that point, though, I, I started searching for a bit more. You, you talk about purpose. Um, yeah. I, I really wanted to be applying my, my skills and talents uh, as well as my, my connections into to something which was a bit bigger than just, just making money for, for wealthy people, which often it does feel like you're doing in, in the banking land, uh, mm. landscape. Mm. And so started uh, doing a bit of research on, on what was going on in the New Zealand market and came across the Next Foundation. And so for those who aren't familiar with that, it's a $100 million philanthropic fund which invests into environmental and educational projects. And that's being run by Bill Commode, um, who is a, a former private equity guy. So he takes a very strategic and uh, diligent approach to, to the, 
what they call investing, which really is grant making, but it uh, it is uh, they apply a lot of financial rigor to the decisions that they make. And mm. so I started working pro bono with uh, with the Next Foundation, and that really was fantastic for me, uh, seeing how those two worlds, the, the financial world and the philanthropic space, could coexist right. and deliver some really fantastic outcomes. Um, they they funded some great businesses mm. and, and uh, not for profits that are in in the environment, well, broader environmental and educational yeah. spaces. Oh, that's great. And that process of getting, I guess, it sounds like there was a switch in your brain in terms of wanting to do things more with purpose. Was there a specific event or something that happened that led to that? Or was it more of a gradual feeling in that second year of uh, there must be some other ways I can be be of use? I've, I've always been a philanthropic guy, um, uh, right from, from early days. I've uh, always wanted to, to be helping people, to put, to put it simply. Mm. Um, uh, I spent time uh, mentoring young people while I was at university, and uh, we, we did a lot of fundraising for, for charities in my time there. We did, did some fun stuff, trying to, trying to raise money for World Vision and, and similar charities. Mm-hmm. So that, um, I think, has actually been ingrained in me from, from a young age. Mm. And so as I, I stepped into this world and uh, the, the banking world or broader commercial world, it's the, the biggest pools of, of capital available in the world. And I remember looking at uh, uh, this field of impact investing and seeing that at the time there was $60 billion sitting in impact investing. And that is investments that are uh, employed for, for delivering these social environmental outcomes, but also mm-hmm. um, looking to... to uh, earn a financial return for investors and then you see the the weight of money which is sitting in the the broader financial assets and it's just multiples uh multiples larger so people who are right. investing into the businesses that uh, are doing a lot of harm for our environment or doing a lot of harm for society are getting funded um one uh one uh, deal um i worked on we, we raised a lot of money for a, a gaming company and we managed to raise um, over two hundred million dollars in, in a matter of days, and uh, I compare that to, to some of the social en- uh, entrepreneurs, sorry, that I was starting to meet in that time, and they're just scraping um, mm. to, to raise a hundred thousand dollars, two hundred thousand dollars to yeah. to fund a business and grow a business, which is really trying to trying to do some good, and that that was a bit of an eye opener for me, and um, uh, just a, a disconnect in the capital markets where mm. where money is just flowing into these opportunities. Purely for a financial gain, um, without regarding uh, what the the implications were for the broader stakeholders, um, what's happening to the environment, employment, uh, society, and all these big issues, which just getting kind of left whilst uh, all these businesses that are harming things uh, mm. are getting funded, and that to me was um, just didn't sit right with me, I guess. Yeah, that oh, makes sense. And so you you said you were there for four years, right? So this was kind of gradually building. You were doing some pro bono work. And then I, I guess the question is, what was it that caused you to leave that environment? It sounds like it, like you said, it was a kind of a dream job and you'd landed it fairly soon after graduating. Um, talk us through the process of what came next. I, I started doing some research, so working with the, with the Next Foundation, obviously it was fantastic what they're doing, but the obvious limitation for me is that when they're philanthropic funds, you require generous people to keep endowing these funds. And uh, to, to achieve scale and to start solving some of the, the big problems the world's facing, like climate change and eradicating poverty, mm. we, we needed much bigger pools of capital. The, the philanthropic dollar is always going to have a space mm. uh, to operate and, and trying to solve these issues, but we needed to be able to attract bigger pools of capital. And, and that's where I came across this concept of impact investing, right. which is gaining a lot of momentum internationally. 
uh, some of the, the biggest asset managers in the world were starting to look into the space and I looked across the New Zealand landscape and, and no one was doing it. Mm. Uh, so I started uh, started researching, started uh, having many, many coffees with people in, in the landscape, just testing whether an impact investing fund was viable in New Zealand uh, from an investor perspective, uh, first and foremost, but also inv- investee, were there deals out there that uh, if we managed to raise some money that we could invest in? Mm. And uh, the pretty resounding feedback I managed to get over that period was the answer was yes. Mm. And so that, uh, I guess, got me to a point where either I, I kept trying to do it on the side while I was, I was operating in this investment banking, pretty demanding job, um, or I take a plunge as a, as a 25-year-old uh, at the time mm. and, and step out and, and try to do this. Um, and I, I guess the thought process was uh, if I can't do it now when I'm, I'm – 25 I've got a bit behind me mm. uh, I've got no dependence um, mm. it's, a, it's a great time to take a risk yeah. then, then I never will and I didn't want to look back and, and wonder and so in, in April last year took the, took the plunge left, uh, left First NZ which was really hard to do mm. I was uh, enjoying my job more than ever at that point and uh, stepping away was, was hard and uh, stepping into to no security and uh, just a, a dream ahead of you and trying to figure out how we actually got that into reality uh, was quite a scary thing to do at the time. Mm. So that word that you've used, plunge, you know, that, I love that. It's a very descriptive word. You know, you're yeah. diving in and you're not sure exactly what you're getting when you plunge in. Is there a moment that you can re- recall that you thought, yes, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm typing my resignation letter and that type of thing, like, was there a, a moment that you know you called your parents and said this is happening? Yeah, I, uh, I was actually reading Derek Hanley's book Heart to Start, and one of the things that he talked about doing every year was was taking yourself just out of the uh, out of the world that you're operating in and have some really clear thinking time. Mm. Just think about what you prioritize in life, okay, uh, and and where you want to be allocating uh, your energy, your, your time, well, your resources more broadly. And mm. the way I think about that is my time, my finances, uh, my energy. And so I, I took a weekend, uh, went up north, and uh, went through uh, a number of thought processes. It was great getting off the grid, uh, and just yeah, uh, really extracting myself from from this hectic lifestyle. And I, I decided that this was something I really wanted to do. Uh, not long after that, I, um, I, I told my bosses, this was halfway through 2016, mm-hmm. uh, I told my bosses that I was going to be leaving at the end of the year, which was um, a big step. I guess that kind of really set it in motion for Makes me. Makes it a reality. <laughs> it did, yeah. yeah. Uh, which is just a step I felt like I needed to take because right. stepping out of security and safety, is it's never, never no. easy. Um, yeah. Change is hard. Uh, in the first instance but doing going from something which is really financially secure had fantastic career prospects in terms of working my way up the ladder sure uh into something which was just a whole lot of unknowns was um was hard and i knew i needed to take a first step so that was that was it for me and uh so i guess from that point on i was um pretty pretty serious about about doing this and um, yeah, ended up leaving at the, at the end of uh, March. So yeah. I started working in, in April on, on the fund. Yeah, oh, that's great. And that book that you mentioned, can you just repeat the title and tell us what what, what was it about it that really helped you to... Because some people may, listening may be going, I want to get that book. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's called Heart to Start by Derek Hanley, who's uh, a very successful New Zealand entrepreneur. Mm. And he, he founded a few businesses and sold them. So he was in quite a secure financial perspective, uh, position there, so that always made it easier. But then he formed part of the, the founding team with uh, Richard Branson of the, of the B team, 
which is uh, one of the global leaders in, in trying to get uh, big business operating in a more sustainable way. Mm-hmm. And um, he he went there and worked there for a couple of years and, and since then has, has done a lot of interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. And he, he's just one of those guys, what, what struck me about him is he just had no fear of failure. Uh, which is a is a really competitive guy is something that uh, I don't naturally have. Uh, right. Constantly, constantly comparing myself to others and and, and wanting to be uh, striving to win, mm-hmm. but having a fear of failure, um, which is I guess something that does drive me in kind of an obscure way, um, was something which stepping yourself out of uh, what is probably viewed as a, a pretty successful job in a traditional societal. Uh, perspective into something which you, you really are putting yourself out out to fail and, and fail in a big in a big way. Mm. My dad always told me make your mistakes boldly, and uh, <laughs> I think this is about as bold as as I could go. Sure, yeah. Have you had a chance to meet the author, Derek? Since or no, I haven't. No, um, I tried to connect. Well, he lives up in New York, and I, I tried okay. to connect with him when I was up in New York about eighteen months ago, and yep. uh, just missed each other. Yeah. But uh, hopefully, we'll in the not too distant yeah. future. Because it must be encouraging, just this is a side note, but as an author to hear stories of other people who've read the book and then made these bold decisions. Because, you know, he's probably sitting there typing or whatever and wondering what the impact will be. And actually, here's someone who's acted on it. It's yeah. pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. So what did that? What shape did that take for you? you? You've been meeting, you've been having coffees with lots of people. Like, how do you go about setting something up that hasn't existed in New Zealand before? So first thing for me was was building a team. Um, I, I knew as a as a young guy who, who had a bit of an investment banking track record that I could get a bit of credibility uh, in the space. But what I really needed were some some seasoned operators who who people knew. Uh, so I started talking to to a number of people who I thought might be interested. Uh, was really lucky to to bring on uh, Martin Stern, um, who used to be the head of the equity capital markets team at First NZ. Uh, into the team um, really early on, uh, which was was fantastic. He is uh, probably the most experienced uh, equity capital markets operator in New Zealand. He um, did uh, some of the big. I mean, I talked about the state-owned enterprise sale mm. process earlier. He he led uh, those IPOs from from First NZ side. Uh, also did telecom back in the day and um, a number of deals in between. So someone who's so experienced with, with structuring and actually raising capital was was great. Uh, next person that came on board was David Woods. He um, was actually I was put onto him by Bill from from the Next Foundation, and uh, David um, was running Oiko Credit, which is uh, one of the biggest micro lenders in the world, based yeah. south of the Netherlands. It's, they had a one point two billion dollar loan book, and do some fantastic stuff through Africa. And before that, was also an investment banker. And so getting those two guys on board and, and then I had a mate of mine uh, who was at Simpson Grierson who was giving us a lot of advice mm. from a legal perspective and that kind of got our, our wheels in motion and uh, we we were preparing to, to launch a fund on, on our own. Uh, we, we thought we needed one more person to, to kind of round out our, our investment committee uh, which would also double as a board. And uh, then we were just thinking about structuring and then we were going to go start, uh, start looking to raise. Uh, and at that point, we got put in touch with uh, a couple of uh, other organizations that were doing something very similar uh, at the same time, which after having nothing in the market for, for so many years to get two funds trying to do something very similar was uh, quite coincidental. Hmm. So you got in touch with them as well? Yeah, so they, that was the Arkina Foundation, mm. um, who are, are the new, 
I guess the leaders in New Zealand in the social enterprise incubation space and New Ground Capital, who are a really experienced investment manager. They've done a lot of stuff in, in property and particularly social housing. And this was kind of their first move into into the venture space. And uh, both organisations are, are just full of really high quality people, mm. um, not only from a, a professional perspective, but also from a from a character perspective. And we uh, spent quite a bit of time filling each other out, making sure it was going to be a good fit, mm. uh, personality-wise as, as well as skill set-wise. And uh, we uh, decided after a month or two of kind of circling each other that that it would be. Mm. Um, and so the, the three organisations came together to form what is what is now that was the early days of the Impact Enterprise Fund, mm. which we were preparing to launch New Zealand's first Impact Investing Fund. Oh, that's awesome. And who were the key people on that side of the fence, I guess? Was that Alex Hanant and Emma Geard and some others from Akina? Exactly, or? yes. So we, we dealt primarily with Alex, um, with Dave Allison, who's mm. the, the investment director at Akina, mm. and, and Emma Geard. Mm. And then from the new ground side, it was Roy Thompson, mm. um, Jonathan Holden, and uh, Joy Marslin. Mm. What was it, do you think, that caused there to be so much interest at that particular moment in time? That, that there would be so many like-minded people that you felt the culture fit was going to work as opposed to, say, two years before that. Or, you know, like it, it, as you said, it's a coincidence, but there must be some things going on that, that led to that coincidence. I, I think there's a few things. Firstly, uh, seeing the, the sector being credentialized internationally is big. Uh, so ha- having guys like Fidelity and BlackRock and Bain and, um, TPG launching big impact investing funds in, into the US market uh, and um, also the su- success through Europe and, and even developing nations. Um, India's got a uh, incredibly well, uh, well-functioning well social enterprise and impact investing landscape. And mm. So seeing internationally what was going on, I, I guess we, we both saw that mm. being interested people in the space and just following what the developments are internationally and, and seeing the traction they were getting, I guess we, we kind of landed on that at the same time. Uh, but also then seeing what was going on in the pipeline in New Zealand. Mm. Um, Arkina worked with 750 different social enterprises um, over the course of the, well, the 12 months before we launched. And then also looking at uh, a number of the incubators and accelerator programs and mm. seeing the businesses that are popping through there that are, are purely commercially focused but have a real mission um, at their heart. And so a lot of those can can fit an impact investing mandate whilst they might not call themselves a social enterprise Mm. they very much do fit into what an impact investor is is looking to do Mm. which is is fund businesses that are are targeting market rate financial returns but also delivering really tangible social or environmental outcomes from from just their day-to-day operations Mm. well that was going to be my next question so maybe you can expand on that answer because i'm curious about impact um i guess the word yeah I guess it's impact investing. Like, what is the extra dimension there as opposed to traditional investing? Um, particularly for people listening who are intrigued by the concept but are kind of thinking, oh, how is, what exactly does this involve? The, the way we think about impact is it's additional value creation. So mm-hmm. really fundamental to our thesis is that you don't need to make a financial concession to, to invest into to businesses doing good. Uh, and then measuring that impact um, is, is really diverse based on the sector that these businesses are going to be operating in. And there's certainly sectors that lend themselves better to an impact investor. Uh, the, the commonly employed ones are, are things like clean energy and sustainable food production, education, healthcare, uh, agriculture technology, those sort of spaces. And in the New Zealand landscape, we do see a lot, a lot of that. 
uh, but it can also be really diverse as well. And there's a lot of really cool technology-based solutions to, to some of these big problems that we're facing and mm. people looking at uh, looking at climate change and looking at what the big drivers of that are. And a lot of it is transport and agriculture. So mm. how can we do these two massive sectors uh, and industries which are, have issues globally, um, how can we do them better? Yeah, oh, I think it's awesome. I mean, the the scale or the potential is there, isn't it? And that's the key thing. Um, one of the people I interviewed for this podcast was Elena Casolari, who's an impact investor from Italy. And I think she was setting her um, her operation up in the early 2010s. And she told me that she looked around the world, looked for other models as templates or you know examples of people who are doing it. Did you come across, as you're doing the research and thing, were there some overseas examples that you thought, that's really amazing what they're doing, that's what we want to do here? Yes, definitely. I, I went up to SOCAP, um, Social Capital Conference up in San Francisco, mm-hmm. at the end of 2016. And up there, the, the big kind of pioneers of the impact investing space were there. So the ones that really stood out to me were, were DBL partners, who were one of the first outside investors into, into Tesla. Uh, and that's obviously one of the case studies which has really credentialized the impact investing space. Mm. And Alava, who have uh, just raised a $2 billion impact investing fund of TPG. And so seeing uh, the quality of the people that were being attracted into into those organizations mm. and uh, the, just the, the returns they're able to deliver to, to the investors, but also the magnitude of the impact. Uh, I mean, there's arguably no business in the world that is having a more positive impact in, in changing sectors like energy production and, and transport than Tesla right now. Mm. And uh, having values-aligned investors from, from the early days of their operation, I'm, I'm sure, was incredibly beneficial for them. Mm. And that's uh, really what we want to be plugging into in New Zealand. Yeah. So the the thesis or the the thing that you're aiming for is that you're investing, you're getting back as good a return as you would from a traditional investment but you're getting these extra impacts. Is exactly. That, that's basically it. Yeah. So we are just a venture capital investor. We, yep. uh, we're investing into early stage businesses, um, ones that uh, want to raise external capital to help fund a growth strategy. So we're, we're no different to any other venture capital fund. The, the difference is that we have a mandate to invest into businesses that are delivering these social and environmental outcomes. And to our investors, our uh, limited partners, we are responsible to measure that impact and then report it back to them because from their perspective, it is just additional value creation um, mm. that they want to earn a competitive rate of financial return but also employ their capital into to businesses that are really doing good. Mm. So when you come to evaluate what you're going to invest in and you're looking at those extra dimensions, you know, they're, I guess they, they're quite broad, <laughs> social, yep. economic, environmental, like... How are, I know you're still in the early stages in terms of actually investing, but what are going to be some of the criteria you use? Like, do, do they need to call themselves a social enterprise or how does that play into it? Uh, they don't, um, short answer. Uh, we, we will invest in what we describe as impact businesses mm-hmm. or mission businesses, mission-led mm-hmm. businesses. There's, there's heaps of terminology uh, floating around in this space, but yeah. fundamentally uh, the impact model needs to be really robust. It needs to be well-established. They need to be measuring the impact. And the when we use the word impact, it, it looks very different um, across different sectors. You, you take something like... Um, 
like clean energy and obviously the most obvious um, positive externality of, of a clean energy business is uh, tons of carbon um, removed from the atmosphere and then you look at something in the educational space and your impact outcomes are, are significantly different so as a, as a portfolio we will end up investing across broad range of sectors and we then aggregate that impact across across the portfolio and, yeah. and report that to our to our investors right so you're you're your report back to your investors is going to potentially cover a huge variety of impacts, isn't it? From Definitely. social, environmental, clean energy, all this stuff. Yeah, really, really commonly, there's there's two kind of commonly employed uh, of ways of reporting your your impact. Um, a lot of big funds like Bridges um, out of the UK use the the Sustainable Development Goals, mm-hmm. and that's a really useful benchmark for for impact investors to report against. And then the the Global Impact Investing Network have developed a, a framework called the IRIS, uh, which is is just again looking at some really commonly uh, used uh, measures of of positive impact, and uh, it provides a framework that uh, investors can can I guess overlay over mm. their their portfolios to, to measure the impact. But mm. for, from our perspective, that's a really important part of our diligence mm. is, is making sure that the, the impact model is, is really fundamental to these businesses. It's, yeah. it's not a, a CSR kind of tack on. Right. It's uh, <laughs> right at the heart of what they do on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. It feels like it's a quite a fun stage for you, really, because it's unwritten, right? Exactly. We're yeah. a blank slate of paper, and, yeah. and we're, we're figuring this all out uh, on the fly. Yeah. And it's one of those things you, you don't really know where you're going, but you keep following your nose, and, yeah. and you make what hopefully are smart decisions at the time. Yeah. And um, people people are loving the story. Uh, yeah. the, the feedback we're getting is, is really positive as, as we go around and fundraise. And what's been really encouraging is particularly in the investment banking wealth management networks, which... These guys manage billions of dollars on behalf of their clients. Uh, the feedback we're getting is the conversations about these type of products that not just uh, negative screens, so not investing into bad stuff, but people actually want to invest into to businesses mm-hmm. doing good. Uh, the the frequency of those conversations is just accelerating. Mm. Uh, a lot of these advisors weren't having them eighteen to twenty uh, four months ago, but now are really commonplace. So that's been mm. that's been great to hear. Mm. And how about amongst the potential investors themselves? I guess what's what's been the sort of reaction, and and who are you? approaching with your idea we've uh we've been to a really broad range of of investors Mm -hmm. um we've talked to some of the big trusts and foundations around new zealand uh we've uh, actually received cornerstone investment from the tyndall foundation Mm -hmm. and the st john's uh, college trust board uh both of those guys are uh, renowned for being really progressive and uh thinking um quite strategically about how they employ their investment and philanthropic uh portfolios um, but also been into the really commercial paces, as I talked about the wealth management networks, mm-hmm. um, some of the the other institutional investors. Uh, we've talked to high net worth individuals, um, iwi groups. It's uh, charities. We, we really have uh, mm-hmm. navigated the the broader investor uh, universe. Mm, that's great. And the, the I guess you know we often talk about elevator pitch. What are some? What are the key points that you're trying to get across in those short conversations? First and foremost, this isn't about financial concession. Um, we are creating additional value with the impact rather than sacrificing the financial returns for it. Right. Uh, the way we do that is by investing in what we think are going to be the fastest growing sectors of our economy mm-hmm. over the next uh, next ten years, which is the life of the fund. Mm-hmm. And so that is investing into the clean energies, the ag techs, the sustainable food productions, education type spaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we think that the, the macroeconomic drivers and the risks the world is facing at the moment, um, businesses are just fundamentally starting to operate differently. And yep. these startups 
which are doing it at the core of their business model. Um, they are the ones that are right at the cutting edge of, of these innovations and these technologies. Mm. And we've been talking kind of at a high level about sort of vision and, and how you're going to report and what the impact's going to be. What In terms of the, the granular sort of how much money are we talking about? What is it that you're trying to raise? And as we're recording this, it's sort of end of January. Um, what's your sort of timeline or your next few months hold for you? So we're, we're seeking to raise between 10 to $15 million. Um, we are at the moment about about eight, and we really hope to be drawing a, a first close in the next week or two, Okay, uh, which would, would be fantastic for the momentum of our raise, being able to say we're, we're up and running. Mm. We're, we're doing diligence on some opportunities, but we've got three months to go in our fundraise, um, which we do until the end of April. Mm. So with that uh, 10 to $15 million, we'll, we'll make between eight to 15 investments. Um, and that will be invested over over multiple funding rounds. So if you do the math, we're, we're investing between a million and a million and a half on average across the portfolio. The, the reality is that some of the businesses we invest in um, in a first round won't, won't get subsequent funding, probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those businesses that are really delivering will get more uh, than the lion's share of, of the funding. Mm-hmm. And we will um, we'll invest over a four-year period, um, and then that leaves us six years to, to grow and then realize the, the portfolio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's great. So there's really exciting things on the horizon. There are. It's uh, it's been fantastic in the last couple of weeks since coming back from holiday. Actually, being able to transition from uh, a pure f- uh, fundraising focus to are uh, we actually going to have a fund? To, to now, we are uh, just uh, so so close to, to being able to draw a first close. In which case, we we know we have a fund um, and we can start talking a bit more seriously with some of these businesses that we've we've liked the look of, uh, and actually starting to commence diligence whilst obviously continuing the the fundraising process as well right so you've been keeping a list of potentials that you'd like to approach we have we've got a big database um uh we've attacked it from many different angles obviously arcana doing a lot of their work and the incubation um and growth of these businesses have a really good idea of of what the pipeline looks like Mm. so that's a really good source of deals for us we've also just been uh scoping out the landscape and, and seeing businesses that haven't come through the arcana platforms but may have come through a more traditional startup um, incubator like an ice house or or um, other vc funds around Mm. around the country um, and and lining a few of those up and since word got out um, about the fund we've actually been uh, inundated with a a number of uh, businesses that are looking to raise capital and and see us as a a value aligned partner so uh, all of those things have been really encouraging in terms of what we're seeing in the pipeline yeah Oh, that's really wonderful. And just thinking back a couple months ago, here in Christchurch, we had the Social Enterprise World Forum, and I know there was a special session about impact investing, and uh, it was very well attended. I was there, and I'm sure you were there. <laughs> you know, yeah. is it, um, What do you think that did for the profile of social enterprises and just the general understanding of this sort of way of thinking? Because it, it is different um, from the way people, as we said at the beginning, Normally, you you invest, and the CEO's there to make a profit to return to the shareholders. So, yeah. just talk us through. I guess the impact that 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 event ha- had. I, I think it's fantastic for for raising the profile of of social enterprise. You, you're bringing in some of the the leaders globally. Um, 
It's, uh, I mean, last year it was held in Hong Kong. This year it's held in Christchurch. It's, well, to last year, so 2017, it was held in Christchurch. It's, yeah. uh, it it kind of shows the, the scale that we've got internationally and there's some of the, the bigger... Um, some of the bigger players in the market were down here, which was which was great to see. And mm. I think the New Zealand public has traditionally viewed philanthropy down one end of the spectrum and, and business down the other end of the spectrum. What we're now starting to see is the social enterprises are obviously starting to pull the, the charity in more towards the business end. And we're also starting to see with the requirements for, for CSR reporting and um, just a lot more social responsibility in New Zealand's big businesses that they're starting to move back towards the middle a bit more mm. as well, which is which is great to see. Yeah. And uh, it's when we see some of the the big uh, big law firms, big accounting firms starting to really apply their energy into the space and really seeing it as a as a growth opportunity for them um, as they think about growing their businesses, it kind of shows just the I guess the credentialization of of the landscape. And mm. um, for us who have been in and around it for a while, it's uh, very welcomed. Mm. Yeah, it must be exciting to see other people kind of getting it and, and turning on. Um, different topic, but Emmeline Pat Dahlstrom, I met her, interviewed her for this podcast because of your introduction. So firstly, thank you for that. No problem. <laughs> it was a wonderful conversation about space if people go back and look at the episodes. But the reason that you know her, I think, is the Edmund Hillary Fellowship. Um, and I interviewed Mark Prane as well, who, who was involved and very instrumental in setting that up. Can you just describe that and what that's meant being part of that? The Damon Hillary Fellowship was was something that um, kind of popped up on me last year. Um, the The basic goal is to to bring in some some really skilled people from around the world um, into New Zealand on a, on a three year visa, uh, with the goal of of working on ventures or, or being investors into to businesses that uh, just like what we've been talking about businesses yep. that are, are trying to solve big problems. And so this was the, the first of its kind uh, in the world, which is fantastic from a New Zealand government just showing that uh, progressiveness and it's been started by um, some, some guys, the, the Monaghan brothers and, mm. and Yosef, um, who formed a, a business called Kiwi Connect. They're ex-Silicon Valley guys who uh, had a, a really big business called Inflection. Um, really, really smart and, and doing some great stuff, and they, they had a vision, uh, managed to put it into to reality, and uh, created the first cohort of of the Emin Hillary Fellowship, which I was lucky enough to, to be accepted into mm-hmm. alongside Emmeline, mm-hmm. and we we had our first uh, what we called a retreat, a week long retreat, where all these fellows flew in, um, a lot of uh, a lot of them from Europe and the US, mm-hmm. and we, we had a week retreat out at uh, Waiuku, just out of um, out of Auckland, and. I've never been in an environment like that, um, just with so many incredibly smart and inspiring people wanting to, to have conversations about things that, mm. uh, in my mind, really matter. Um, and that was uh, fantastic to be a part of. Mm. must have been hard at dinner times. You're like turning from one side to the other, like, oh, I want to talk about space with you, but oh, I want to talk about blockchain with you. And exactly. <laughs> the, World-leading uh, experts everywhere. Yes, yeah, stuff that just makes your head spin. And uh, I, I certainly found by the end of the days, I was absolutely exhausted. Right. Um, you just you feel like you need to be on your toes uh, every minute of the day to, to hold your weight in that sort of environment. And obviously, you, you feel underqualified, but um, when you feel like, you're underqualified in a room like that that's when you're growing you don't yeah. want to be the smartest guy in the room so no. i i thoroughly enjoyed that challenge um and coming out of it as well it, it wasn't just about meeting and warm fuzzies it really was about putting into action um projects that mm. people were collaborating on and 
um, and assistance. Uh, it, it really is a, a community feel amongst the amongst the fellows. And from an investor perspective, um, it was it was great for me just to pick the brain of, of some of the guys who are mm. working in the biggest venture capital funds in, in Silicon Valley and just mm. how they do it, how they see. Uh, how they see the sector evolving and New Zealand is obviously uh, years and years behind where, where that is but being able to pick the brain of, of guys like that um, mm. it, it does help us to, to catch up mm, that's great well you got to start somewhere don't you if the, nothing existed and yeah and the other name that you mentioned was David Woods and through that connection been involved in organizing a conference in April at Te Papa, talking yeah. about charity and um, social enterprise and investing and things. So he's going to come along to that and be part of a panel. Fantastic. So that'll be great to have him and uh, draw on his experience of years and years and years of doing this. So it's really fun to see sort of those connections and, you know, um, lots of people doing really amazing things these days. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it is. It's, it's quite inspiring. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I just want to say thank you for joining me. I think it will be challenging for many people to hear about this idea of impact ventures. But listening to your story, you can actually see the origins of it back as a 13-year-old, right? Yeah. <laughs> Selling clothes that you've imported from Southeast Asia. So it's it's been fascinating to see that thread through. You know, you knew what you wanted to do. You studied it. You did it for a while. And I guess... The interesting thing for me is still, you know, you're very young. So it's wonderful that you're branching out and trying this as a new thing. And it'll be fun to watch your journey and maybe have you back on the podcast in a few years and see what, what happened next. Yeah, thank you. You would love to come back. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks very much for joining me, Chris. It's been wonderful to have you here. You're welcome. Thanks, Sam. Well, I certainly enjoyed talking with Chris, and I hope you enjoyed listening in on our conversation. It's amazing to think about impact investing and that we're at the early stages of it here in New Zealand, and Chris is involved in leading the way. It will definitely be a fascinating area to be watching and seeing how it grows here. Hey, the other thing to draw to your attention since we're talking about impact investing is the Impact Investing Network, which is something that started a couple months ago. And I became a member of it and have found it really helpful because they send out updates about things that are happening in New Zealand and worldwide related to impact investing. So if you Google Impact Investing Network New Zealand, it will come up, or the website is impactinvestingnetwork.nz, and there's some exciting developments happening there. And another thing to mention if you're listening to this in April when I'm first releasing it is that there's a conference at Te Papa coming up, and I'm actually going to be moderating a session on impact investing, social enterprise, and charities. That conference is called Perspectives on Charity Law, Accounting, and Regulation in New Zealand. It's going to be a two-day conference, and we've had close to 200 people registering. So you might want to check that one out. Now, in next week's episode, we're going to go in a different direction and talk with Dr. Peter Simpson about the literary tradition here in New Zealand. And we talk about different poets, authors, musicians, painters, all people who Peter has written biographies of. Here's an excerpt of the interview with Peter. In New Zealand back in the 30s, everything was just getting started in terms of the establishment of a kind of native mm. movement in the arts. And there were so few of them mm. that they tended to sort of um, come together and seek each other out in sympathy and somebody like Douglas Lilburn, for example, as mm. a composer, mm. well, he was the only classical composer active in the country, mm. literally, mm. in the 1940s. And 
living in Christchurch, you know, seeking out the company of like-minded people, mm. he naturally gravitated to the painters and the poets yeah. and the publishers and the theatre people, and he started to collaborate with them. So Nio Marsh took him up to compose the music for her Shakespeare productions. Alan Kernow, mm. Lilburn set his poems to music. Don't forget that to get that and other upcoming episodes, if you hit subscribe, it will appear automatically in the podcasting app that you're choosing. And if you enjoyed the content of this episode, then why not check out some of the earlier ones, because this is the 35th one, and maybe tell a friend. Until next time. Mm